You may or may not be aware, um, and that's why I wanted to just take this this moment to make you aware, is that um, one of the things that we've always felt was a big deal, but always felt like we also didn't do a very good job with, was knowing that it's very important to us that we get to worship, we get to open up God's Word, and we get to teach it. Um, but I, I grew up as a pastor's kid, which means I um, was in church from the time I was very little. Um, I learned very, very early to sit still and be quiet during the church time. And um, what I really learned, just to be completely honest with you, was I learned that I was supposed to uh, sing a couple hymns and sit still and doodle on a page for about 40 minutes and then go eat at a buffet. That's what, that's what we did growing up. I, I kid you not, I'm not making this up, okay? I was in high school. I was a senior in high school before the very first time that I ever remember sitting in a service and actually paying attention to what the pastor said. I'd already prayed the prayer, asked Jesus in my heart, got baptized and all those things. But I was 17 years old before I can ever recall hearing a preacher stand up on a stage and read from the Bible and teach it and actually pay any attention. And so um, what's very important to us is that we want every single one of you, if you're, if you're one years old or if you're a, a lot older than that, we, we want you to know the Bible. We make a big deal about the Bible. In fact, um, uh, we to us... This deal, this, this Bible is really the only thing that makes sense to us. We worship Jesus, we teach from it, because we actually believe, that, well, I, I know this for a fact, we don't have any answers for you. Like, I have nothing to offer you. I can't save you, I can't fix you. Like, I can't even do that for myself. Like, I have a hard enough time trying to do the right thing personally. To, so, I have nothing to offer you. We don't have any superheroes. I know Jared, one of our pastors, is also a drummer, and that's pretty fancy. And Paul played a guitar, and in a little while he'll play a, a piano. So, that's fancy, but that's about the only gifting we have in this deal. And so, it's not like we have very much to offer you. So, God's Word is what we have to offer you. And even that, it's not just about God's Word, it's about pointing you to a person who we just sang about, a king who gave up his glory, came down to earth, and literally died for us so we didn't have to. And so even as we look at God's word, one of the things that's important is we use this for a very specific purpose, and this to point people to Jesus. In other words, it's like this. I have a, a, I don't know, a couple-month-old dog now. Her name's Topanga. She poops everywhere, all over the grass. It gets on our shoes. It's all over, everywhere. And she's a great Pyrenees dog. Our Briggs calls her a great Pyrenees, um, which I think is a little different, but they're both, uh, I mean, it works. Um, but, like, Topanga will be in the yard, and I'll be like, hey, Topanga. That's what we call her because of Boy Meets World. We're going to have a girl, a boy eventually, and we'll name him Corey. Jared, are you okay up here? Jared's going to play you a song right here. <laughs> uh, it's like, um, so uh, we have Topanga, and I'll be like, Topanga, go get your food, and I'll point. You know what she does every time I point at something? She runs straight to my finger. Have you ever noticed that? doesn't make any sense at all. No, 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 Tabanga, your food's over there. Go get your food, and Tabanga will come sniff my finger. She'll come chew on my finger. No, 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 the food, right? Well, one thing that is concerning at times is that the Bible is literally a finger that's pointing, saying, no, 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 it's about Jesus. No, no, look over there. That's Jesus. And yet sometimes we go and we use this thing for artillery and to fight. And it's like, no, 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 the point beginning from Genesis with the tree and the fallen Adam and Eve, all the way through Revelation, the point has always been Jesus. That's very important to us, as we definitely, definitely don't want to put any of us in a position where we, we teach you habits of just coming through and going through a routine. We actually want you to know the Bible, because we actually make, want you to understand more about Jesus. And just to be completely honest with you, this environment's probably not the best um, for a a child. I mean, you're more than welcome to bring your kid in here. That's fine. We're not offended by it. We actually are completely okay that we're not worried about the distractions of it. So if you have a kid in here, that's awesome. But we have created environments for them because we really do think it's important that they also know the Bible. And uh, the reason I tell you this is starting next week, uh, we will be creating, starting next Sunday at 1030 upstairs, you know, we've acquired the space in there. We'll be having our own worship service for elementary age kids. So you can check them in. Uh, you'll actually be able to check them in upstairs. They'll be able to go in. They'll have their own worship service during this time. So the third through fifth graders who just exited now, they're kind of going and walking through the Bible at this point. Um, that will be available next week. Again, let me just be real clear. We're not anti-kids in here. If you want your kids to come to church with you, you're like, man, I work 80 hours a week. This is the one hour I can sit with my kid. That's fine. There is, there is no objection to that. We just want you to know that we're... 
We're doing all the work on the front end to make this an incredible place that your kids come and pour water in your face in the morning on Sundays and say, you've got to get up because I've got to go learn about Jesus. And so that'll start next week, 1030. Um, so basically the four rooms downstairs will be birthed through preschool and upstairs will be some elementary space for us. With that being said, we'd love for more of you to consider maybe serving once a month to help make that happen with us. Jared and Drew, myself, Paul, we're all trying to figure out how do we, how do we invest our time in developing and teaching people about Jesus. So that's what's going on. Also, for our third through fifth graders that are they're out there right now, uh, hanging out with Jason, walking through the same material, which is some tough stuff that we're going to be going through today. Um, next Saturday, so as in six days from here, or this Saturday, I guess, um, at four o'clock, there will be a little shindig, a little get together for just that age group here. Uh, we'll be meeting at four o'clock, having a little Caesar's pizza, hanging out, and then taking a couple of vans down to go bowling. And so bring a few bucks, for, uh, five bucks, I guess, and show up here if you want to be a part of that. Moms, dads, if you want to go with us, awesome. If you just want to drop your kids off and be like, yeah, I get you know, whatever that is, works for us too. Third through fifth grade right here um, uh, at 4 o'clock. So that's, that's those news. While I'm talking about uh, children, I'd love for you to know about what's going on in our student ministry as well. Every Wednesday night right here at 6.30 is probably the most incredible service we have. Dane teaches our students, 6th through 12th graders, the Bible. There's, there's parents that hang out now. We've actually developed this area. So if, you, if you're a mom or dad and want to be a creeper and, you're like, and your kids are like, Mom, Dad, don't go in here. You know, there's like, you know they're, they're, they're at that age. I don't know. I think that age, for me, I think it starts about four or five, right? I mean, I have a four-year-old. But we now have kind of developed the balcony where there's more seating up there. And we even put another screen so when you sit up in the balcony, you can still see what's going on right above your heads right there. And so would love for you to come see what's going on there at 630 right here in this place. If you're college age, would love for you to come serve and jump in the middle of that. And we also have um, Tuesday night merge at 630 upstairs in our, in our new space up there. So that's all those kind of announcements. One other thing I, I want to mention real quick, and then I'm going to jump into some probably the, uh, the tough one of the toughest Sets of scripture I've ever, ever taught from. Never taught from it from a stage before. But before I do that, um, I want to mention one thing. Drew, are you still in here? Is Drew still in here? Drew, will, will, Drew, will you stand up? This is Drew Burnett. He's a pastor of community. No, no, stay standing. Please, stay standing. Drew, stay standing. Uh, no, no, stay standing, yeah. Um, Drew ran 107 and a third miles over the last 24 hours. I don't, to be honest with you, I don't know why you're clapping about that. I don't think you should encourage that. It makes no sense to me. But, you know, as, as we shared last week, Drew and Amy, no, keep standing. Stay standing, please. <laughs> um, Drew and Amy and Malachi are, are, are preparing to bring their son home or son's home from, from Uganda. And so that costs a lot of money from uh, fly, flying over there, taking, I mean, you're talking about taking three of them over there, bringing four, uh, one or two more back. So you're talking about lots of flights, lots of paperwork. Keep standing. Yeah, thanks, Drew. Um, and so I just want uh, uh, you guys to, to know what's going on there. And the main reason I understand, just to be honest, uh, is because Drew hasn't slept since Friday night. So if you're anywhere in that area and he nods his head, you pop him on the back of the head and say, no, 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 you listen to the Bible. You're one of our pastors. Be a good example. Be a good example. Okay? So uh, thanks, thanks, Drew. You can sit now. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Okay, we're in Acts chapter 4 and 5. Let me pray, and we're going to get uh, do some work. Um, Jesus, you're kind and gracious and loving, and um, all that is a, a lot more than I understand. Um, Jesus, even as we look at this material, God, there, um, I mean, there are all sorts of different people from all sorts of different backgrounds. God, there are people that fully believe this is your word. There are other people in this room that think this is a fairy tale. And so, Jesus, I just want to confess that I, I feel this pressure to convince people of how good you are. And um, God, I just also confess that I know I don't have that power. And so Jesus, as we, as we look at your word, God, it's very important to us that this word points to you, Jesus. Um, that in this room today, that people would see you, they would interact with you, they'd experience you, and they leave here differently because of it. And so God, just for the few minutes that we have together, God, would you give us um, supernatural attention span, God, to investigate your word, to, to look at it honestly, and chase after um, whatever it is you call us to. So God, as we read your word, give us the wisdom and discernment to know how to serve you well. And then give us the courage to actually do it. God, for the folks who just aren't there yet, not even sure you're real. Jesus, would this be a day that they feel completely comfortable to at least consider, Jesus, that you could be good and that you could be real and that you could be loving and that you could have a, a plan for each of us. And a plan with a hope and a future. 
And that you could be a God who literally does, as your word says, work everything together for the good, for those you've called according to your purpose, for those who love you. And so, Jesus, we give you this time. And I pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so we've, we're in the, the book of Acts, which is a, a pretty exciting book. We went through the Gospel of John, now we're in Acts. We're in, I think, the fourth week of this deal. And um, uh, we're looking at some, some pretty intriguing things. Let me just give you kind of a review of what's happened. And the book of Acts is basically means the Acts of the, of the Apostles. This is Jesus dies on a cross. You all know that story in some way, some shape. He's put in a tomb. He defeats death because a, a little grave couldn't hold God. He defeats death, comes back to life, spends 40 days on this earth, walking with his 11 disciples that are left and basically saying, this is what I want you to do. I'm going to build my church through you. You're going to go care for the people of this world and you're going to go share some ridiculously, incredibly good news about hope and grace and mercy and all those things. And you're going to see something outrageous happen in this deal. That's what you're going to see. You're going to see all those things. And so that's what, what Jesus it says to these, these guys, and then he ascends up into heaven like on a, in some kind of you know, escalator, and he goes on into heaven, and these guys are just left there saying, okay. And then they are now left, they're left 2,000 years ago, to go and make sure people are aware of this news. Best news ever shared. If you won the lottery, if you won millions of dollars, um, that you, if you won millions or billions of dollars, you would, you would be interested in sharing at least a portion of that. This is much better than money. This is much better than some good idea. This is Jesus. And he, so these, these guys decided they're going to do whatever it takes, and they're going to go and tell people about Jesus. Not in a kooky way, not with a bullhorn screaming and yelling people at people and telling them how messy they are, but by going and loving and caring for them. So the first four chapters of Acts, that's what we see, and some incredible things happen. They go from about 11 people to 12, then 12 to 300, then 300 to 500, and 500 to 3,000, 3,000 to 5,000, and that's where we are. So now there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people in the middle of this deal. And so now they're all together. They're kind of living like this hippie-style life. It's pretty unique. And now it's about to get messy, which is good because it would be like if it was all fairy tale, if it was all nice bows at the end, you'd be like, whatever. That's not how it actually works. I mean, we keep talking about this church as it's a family. We keep talking about this movement as it's a family of people. And we all know that each family has a lot of crazy people. If you don't have any crazy people in your family, you do. It just happens to be you and you're just unaware. I just want to be real clear there. Nobody's crazy in my family. Yeah, whatever. Every time you walk in, they're like, uh-oh, here's Uncle Tony, <laughs> you know. Why does he always chew on that bone the whole time at Thanksgiving, you know? Anyway, um, maybe that doesn't happen. <laughs> maybe that's just my family. Um, <laughs> Uncle Tony, I sound kind of Italian. Hey, fat Tony, we're not. I'm actually more Jewish. I, my, my great-great-great-grandfather was a Jewish rabbi in Charleston, South Carolina in the 1700s. And then he had lots of sons. And then one of them was a Jewish rabbi and became a Christian. His name was Reverend Moses. And that's my great-great-great-grandfather. And so I have no uh, Italian in my blood there. Um, but anyway, none of that matters. Um, so, so now we are, Acts chapter 4, here we are, and we're about to jump into some messy stuff. I just want to be real clear up front, two people die. I mean, like drop dead in the middle of a moment. It's pretty awkward to be like, Jesus loves you and grace has extended to you. But you two people are going to die, right? I mean, it's hard because it's like, yes, Jesus loves you. Well, what about these two guys? They lied and all of a sudden they died. I mean, that's what happened. So I want us to work through it. But before we do that, there's a, a couple, uh, there's a new um, vocabulary word I need you to know. One of the things we talked about here is doctrine. And doctrine is literally, it just means a set of principles that we live by, right? Um, don't, don't eat yellow snow, don't, don't spit into the wind, whatever those things are, drive on the right side of the road. I mean, that, doctrine literally means that. So don't be overwhelmed by that word. Like, uh-oh, there's some big vocabulary, Jesus word. Doctrine literally means just a set of principles we live by. We've walked through some, some in the last several weeks. One was the, the doctrine of sovereignty, which basically means God is completely in control and he bends things to exactly the way he sees fit. Another one is the doctrine of foreknowledge. Foreknowledge literally means that Jesus is outside of time. While we live with a birth and a death and we have very limited knowledge of even our present day, very limited knowledge of what's happened to us in the past and no knowledge about what's going to happen in the future, Jesus stands outside of time so we can trust God for, um, fully. When you take the doctrine of foreknowledge and doctrine of sovereignty, which is God knows everything and God works in everything, you have this pretty word called the doctrine of providence, which means Jesus sees everything, if you can imagine an eyeball, and Jesus is working in everything, if you can imagine a hand. That's what providence means. And so those are some, some nice little words that we have. Another one that we discussed was the doctrine of suffering. It's not quite as fun. 
And it's about that suffering will happen. Jesus says, when the rains come. So a part of the deal is just acknowledge that we live in a fallen world. I shared with you several weeks ago that the Bible says Satan is the, 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 the ruler of this world. That Satan is the ruler of this wor- world and he is the author and king of lies. That's what the Bible says. And so because we live in a world that has an enemy that would love to see it destroyed, love to see us destroyed, of course, bad things do and will happen. And so that's the part of the thing that we have to acknowledge. I don't need to tell you that you might suffer. The question that you ask is not when, uh, how will I suffer, it's, or if I will suffer. It's this question. When will I suffer and how bad will it be? That's just the reality of what we live in. And so those are some of the words, some of the things that we just need to understand as we work through God's word. I mean, we ask God, Bad things happen to good people, and I'll answer it the same way every time. It only happened once. A bad thing only happened to a good person once, and it was Jesus, and he volunteered for it. The honest truth is we're just really not that good. We're just pretty messy people. We lie. We're deceitful. We're all those things. And there's just this process of where we are, which is messy, broken. And the, the, the process is there's this path that God would like to, as I think for our whole church, our whole family, he'd like to take us from where we are to where he would have us to be, right? And that word that we use there is called the doctrine of sanctification. What it means is this process, at some point, if you're a follower of Jesus, at some point we'll be in heaven. And when we get there, we, the, the Bible says that there will be a day where there'll be no more tears, no more shame, and no more sorrow. Like, there'll be a day where we will get to a place where we are like Jesus, right? But right now, we haven't gotten there yet. In fact, none of us have gotten fully there. None of us will get there this side of heaven. But every day, there's this process that we become more and more like Jesus. We I stop... Things that used to matter to us matter less now, right? So that's, that's a process of sanctification that now I am here, but one day as I continue to follow Jesus, I'll become more like him. That's what we call the doctrine of sanctification, okay? Sanctification literally means that we're just being set apart and being prepared for what God has prepared for us. We're just heaven to be like Jesus, to live in a world that we're not run by our fear, run by our anxiety, run by all those things. That's just where we are. If we're just real honest, we all lie. We all do. We all lie. We all hide. We all cheat. We all at least offer some gray solutions to answers. We all justify things. We all look at things we should. I mean, if we're just being real honest, nobody in this room is perfect. Nobody. In fact, if we're being real honest, nobody in this room is even close to perfect. That's not a judgment. That is just kind of a a concession of where we are. Well, that's not Jesus' plan for you. Jesus doesn't intend for you to always walk in insecurities and walk without value and walk without hope. But that process happens little by little, day by day. It's something that we call the cumulative effect. I mean, this is the way I always explain it to people. No one, when they're young, says, when I get old, I want to stand on a street corner at an elementary school and sell kids crack. Nobody says that. No one says, man, when I get old. But guess what? There are people that do that. How does that happen? Well, little by little, day by day, the decisions they make lead them to that direction. Nobody says, man, by this time in five years, I mean, this is the journey I'm on right now, I am weigh 400 pounds, right? I mean, that's not the goal, but little by little, day by day, people lose weight, little by little, day by day. There's this cumulative effect. And the process and the doctrine of sanctification is this idea that little by little, day by day, even if you don't see it, Jesus is in the process. And so the question then becomes, well, how do I know if that's happening for me, right? If you're a Christian, this is something you really struggle with because you're like, okay, how do I know this happening? If you're a non-Christian, you're like, yeah, this is, I really like to know the answer to this because my mama talks about how she's a Christian, but the thing she does or, you know, that person or this person. And so we live in this world where this is a pretty big question for us, right? And so there's two things that happen, and then we'll jump into the, the God's word, and I think it's pretty important. There's two things that happen to us that you can know and understand that you are becoming more like Jesus. Here's the first one, okay? The first one is this. The first one is that eventually, we're not there, eventually what feels, what is right also feels right. Let me explain this to you. Eventually what is right also feels right. One of the big battles that we live in in this world, and we've all, we've all even probably offered this advice, I've offered it several times before, is just follow your heart, right? Just do it, do whatever makes your heart, right? You hear it all the time, right? But do you know what the Bible says about your heart? 110 times. It says that your heart is deceitful. Your heart is wicked. Your heart is conniving. That's, just, you know, that's where we are, if we're being honest. 
How many times have we made decisions about something? We shouldn't have bought the car. We shouldn't have dated the person. We shouldn't have. And in our head, we came up with 150 different justifications for doing it. Oh, no, it'll work out. No, I'll, I'll go into debt $50,000 because, I mean, next week, I'm probably going to get that new job, right? I mean, how many of us have done that, right? There's something about our heart that says, no, 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 no. Do you just do it? Just do whatever comes natural. Do that deal. Like, that is really one of the big arguments that we're seeing in this world. In fact, all of us are. Well, I can't help it. I just was born this way, right? I mean, that's me. I, I was born very passionate, which also tends to slant towards angry, right? But that, even though that's natural for me, that doesn't mean that God's plan for me is to scream and yell at people and lose my temper, right? I mean, so the process is, it never is always about just what feels right. It has nothing to do with it. In fact, as we discipline Briggs, or my little four and three quarters, or four and three fourths, that's what he'll tell you. He's four and three fourths these days. Um, it's a little bit more than that, but I, we don't get, I don't want to get all in the fractions and changes every day. Just know that underneath it, there's a denominator and it's three. Uh, so anyway, um, so Briggs is changing every day. But one of the things that we go through, I, I promise you, I say this, and this is not because I'm a good parent. I, I struggle with it every day, but every day for all, like every day, I know that at least 10 times a day, I'm looking at Briggs and saying, buddy, I understand that's what you want to do. But this isn't about what you want to do. It's about what is the right thing to do. Buddy, what do you think the right thing to do? Well, probably to eat that. Probably to eat my vegetables. Probably to go to sleep. Probably to go get in the bathroom. Probably to pick up my clothes and put them up. That's right, buddy. And now I want you to do the right thing, not what you feel like. Because the messiest thing we could probably do is chase after whatever our heart tells us to. In fact, some of the biggest trouble that we're, we've been in financially, relationally, is because we've just followed our heart. Of sanctification is this is that as you continue to chase after Jesus, eventually what feels right or what is right also feels right. For example, you see couples, and this is a little awkward for us, but you see couples late in their 80s who are still madly in love, still have a very physically intimate relationship. And you're like, whoa, how does all that work? I mean, what's going on here? But something about what is right eventually feels right. I mean, I know old couples that love their spouse. I mean, I think of Julie's grandfather, um, whose wife died a, a, about a year ago. And, like, the idea of him even, like, even considering some other kind of conversation with another woman just makes no sense to him because she, he's like, no one ever can match my Louise. You know, like, that's just not even a possibility. And what you see is... If, that wasn't always the case. If we're honest here, some of you have just gotten married and you're maybe in the honeymoon deal. Some of you have been married five years and you like lean over at night and you're like, oh my goodness. He's snoring a little bit and I got this pillow here and I wonder if I could just give it, you know, just be honest. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's too, but you still do what's right and eventually it feels right. There are some people in this church, many of you, who are incredibly generous. Financially, you are beyond generous to our church, and I don't even understand it. I'd like to say I'd love to be that way, but it's hard for me. Not that I'm stingy. I like to be generous, but some of you are ridiculously generous. My guess is you weren't always that way. My guess is slowly and slowly you started saying, I'm going to still trust God with my pocketbook. I'm going to do what's right even when it doesn't feel like it. Even though I like to have the new car, that car payment instead, I'm going to trust and give back to God because that's what God tells me to do. Process, some of you, not only does it, is it right for you to give? It actually feels So one of the processes of sanctification is what feels right becomes right. And here's the second one. And I think this is the one that you'll, you'll see mostly today. And here's what it looks like. As I become more like Jesus, as you become more like Jesus, what happens is we loosen our grip on things and strengthen our grip on relationships. Okay? We loosen our grip on things. All of a sudden, you know what? I don't care if I ever drive a new car anymore. But I care that my kid's healthy and gets braces, right? You know, all of a sudden, I don't really care about how nice my clothes are. And all of a sudden, I care a lot more about taking care of people that are around me, right? All of a sudden, I don't, I mean, I really do not care about having fancy things. But I care a lot about the other three elders on our staff that I literally would die for them. Because what happens is, eventually, we, as we become more like Jesus and chase after him, we loosen our grip on things, strengthen our grip, and this is what's happening right here in the gospel, in the book of Acts, is that folks are starting to realize, man, like, I 
the right thing because it feels right. It is right. And I just don't really care anymore about this whole idea of acquisition. More equals better. I don't need more things. I'd rather make my things available so that I can care. What's happening in this deal? Now, before we get here, I want to be real clear. This isn't, you can take a deep breath. I'm not going to. That's all your car keys or house keys or all your extra clothes. None of that's going to happen today. I, I, I'm, I have no desire to manipulate or tell, tell you how you should respond to this. I just want to read to you what happens. No, I want to be clear. Two people die in this for their disobedience. But I, I think we'll even be able to resolve that. So Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Here's how it goes. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon all, them all. So basically they're saying, hey, look, there's a, they, they said, look, this isn't about this. This isn't about being stingy, stingy. This is about making everything available to everyone. And they were seeing incredible things. Grace had just been poured out in an absurd way. Grace is basically the idea that you get better and better things than you deserve, right? And so they're like, hey, why would we care anymore about this car when we have Jesus, right? I mean, that's kind of what they're walking through. Um, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had a need. Again, they started opening their hands and saying, look, and I'm just reading the Bible here, okay, so don't get upset with me on this deal. I mean, I, I actually feel pretty awkward saying this because as I'm, I'm doing this, I'm like, man, I've been working for the last year on a 10-acre property. We just finished up a chicken coop, put some more chickens in there, uh, been renovating a house, knocking out walls, have 4,000 square feet and 10 acres. I'm like, uh-oh. You know, like, I'm, I'm, I'm here in the tension with you. Again, I don't know the answer, as we said the first week. Just kind of want you to give God a blank page and say, okay, let's work this out together. And so we'll continue. Verse 36, thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Verse 16, but a man named Ananias with his wife, wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with the wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Why? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? That's what he says. You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have carried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon the all who heard of these things. Yeah. <laughs> How would you like to be in my place right now? I get to explain to you why Jesus is loving and good and all this. Wait, don't you always stay on stage that Jesus died for you? He loves you. There's nothing you could ever do to make God love you any less. There's nothing ever you could do to make God love you anymore. Like, I mean, that's kind of like, now all of a sudden, my, like, does this seem a little contradictory? They just got zapped, you know, like in the middle of a moment. They just died, right? They lied, one lie. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. You know what? I'll just be honest. I've lied more than they have. I've probably lied from a stage like this with a microphone and a Bible in my hand before. Not on, I mean, maybe on purpose probably at some point in my life, right? So explain this to me. If we talk about Jesus and grace and all those things, and all of a sudden two people who sold their stuff and gave most of it to Jesus, they probably gave 90% of it to him. He killed them, right? That's what you're thinking. Now, how in the world does that work? Yeah, that's what I want to sign up for. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray a prayer. We're going to take up another offering. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Everybody, Jesus is watching. Jesus is watching. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to sing a couple more songs, and you're going to walk out of here. You're going to be shaking, and you're just going to be like, you're never going to lie again, right? Either that, or you're going to think, God is nuts. I want nothing to do with that. Some of you are there now. Yep, that's exactly the God I heard about, right? Like the mean little kid holding a, holding a, a, a spying glass on, on, with sun burning up ha- ants. That's kind of like how we kind of view God a little bit, right? And that's where we are. And now I get to explain to you how this all works. And I'm a little nervous about it, but let me explain it to you this way. Okay. Um, like I told you in the beginning, when we walk through the different things that God has foreknowledge, God has sovereignty, means he bends everything to the way he fits, sees fit. And I told you about suffering, and I said, you know, that the Bible says that Satan is the ruler of this world and the author and king of lies. Here's what, what I'm saying. Okay. We live in a world that naturally naturally gravitates towards sin. We live in a world that naturally gravitates towards death. It takes very, it takes no work for me. I could take the chicken, I could stick it out in the yard and leave it in a little pen and within two weeks that chicken will be dead, right? Naturally, that chicken gravitates to death, not to life. Naturally. It'll fight for life, but eventually it's going to die, right? That's why we all live in this kind of this messed up deal where our, if we're being real honest, our theology is more about self-preservation than anything else. How do I save myself? Oh, I got a lie so they don't think that of me. Or how can I store more? How can I be more comfortable? Which is just you saying, how do I not depend on anybody else but myself? So we gravitate towards how do we protect ourselves from this messy world that we live in, right? Some of you got big bunkers. I do. I mean, I have a basement right now. Um, I, I don't know if y'all have ever watched the end of the world shows, not like the, the Jesus ones, but the ones like on Discovery Channel or whatever where these people are like preparing for it. And secretly inside, I know, they, maybe they don't all say it, but they're hoping it happens. They are because they got all this stuff, right? I mean, Thursday night I went home early and I got the generator ready just in case we lost power. Um, I cranked it up, made sure everything was good, cleaned out the carburetor, all that kind of stuff. I, I think that's what it was. It might have just been something else that I thought was a carburetor and don't know that much about it. Whatever I did, it cranked, it ran for the while, and the muffler got really hot. I know that. I'll tell you how I know that. Because um, I decided to take the muffler, I mean, the whole thing with the muffler, the hot muffler, and the, you know, 250-pound, let's just impress you guys, the 500-pound generator that I was carrying. I had to carry it down about 12 concrete stairs to sit outside our basement, just in case the power go out like I did a couple weeks ago, right? And I'm carrying it, right? And all of a sudden, I fall, and I, like, I save myself. Don't worry, it's raining outside. It was dangerous, and I was an animal. And um, a generator hit my arm. I got a big bruise, and I sat it down on my leg right here, right? And um, so the muffler was on my leg, and it's just, like, frying. And I'm like, what inappropriate world, word can I scream right now? And I, I, I came up with lots, obviously. Um, put it down. And so I had this gigantic burn. Like, I'm talking about, like, bubbly, nasty. You can see little holes from the muffler all on my leg. Um, and I'll be honest with you, Thursday night, when it didn't storm bad enough to put out my power, I kid you not, I was mad. I'm like, come on, God. Like, I did all this work. I was really going to impress my wife, and all of a sudden, you just want to give us nice weather. Right? I mean, that's really what I felt in the deal. Like, it really was. But, you know, like, this is, like, you know, people kind of prepare for this. They're like, man, the world's messy. Let's just prepare for doom and gloom, worst-case scenarios. Anywhere you look, you can get a book about worst-case scenarios. Because what we know is it's all possible, right? Because naturally, naturally, our world gravitates to messiness. Our world gravitates to brokenness. Our world gravitates to death. Just like if I drop this ball, right? It falls, that's not because I have some special power. It's something called gravity. Right now, the earth is bigger than this ball is. And so when it drops, it drops at 32 feet per second, sucks right to the ground. Did you notice I didn't throw it down, right? Didn't do anything. In fact, the only thing I did was release it. That's all I did. You see, so many times we get so angry at God, right? I want to be real clear here, because if you've read the scripture before, it doesn't say Jesus killed them. It doesn't say Jesus suffocated them. Just said they lied. They breathed their last breath. Do I know how they died? No. Do I think Jesus caused it? I'm not sure. Did I, do I think Jesus allowed it? Absolutely. Here's all they did. It was just like me with this ball. It's not like I throw the ball on the ground and, and let it fall, right? I just released it from my grip. Basically, what you see here in the story is you see two people 
who say, God, okay, we know what your plan is. We'll choose our own instead. In other words, God, I understand what your plan is. You want us to hold everything in common. You want us to trust us fully. And Peter's even saying, look, like really? You need to pretend about this? It was your land first. You sold it and it still was at your disposal. It actually is you want to act like and pretend like you're more religious than you really are. You want to act like you love God more than you really do. And did Jesus kill him? I don't know. Did they die? Yes. Did Jesus allow it? Absolutely. The only thing I can tell you is at one point they were in the grip of Jesus And at some point, they decided they didn't want to be anymore. And naturally, that's what happens. That's what sin is. When the Bible says the wages of your sin is death, it's not joking. I mean, that literally means that when you sin, it's you saying, I like my plan better than yours. God, I understand that you're all in charge. You spoke the earth into existence, but I'll choose my own plan. That's sin. God, I understand I'm not supposed to eat from that tree. But that tree sounds better than any other. I'm going to do it anyway. God, I understand you got a plan, but I'm going to choose my own plan. Here's what you're really saying. God, we sing it, right? He's got the whole world in his hands. We sing it, right? That's us saying, God, you know what? I get that you have the whole world in your hands, but I don't really want to be in your hands. Don't be in your hands. Ananias and Sapphira, God didn't destroy them and throw them down and crush them with his heel like he did Satan. He just said, okay. You want to go your own way? You want to do your own plan? Then go. You see it in the Old Testament with Noah. And you see God look upon a whole generation and think, oh my goodness, like these folks, they're killing each other. They're destroying each other. And God wipes out a whole generation of people other than Noah's family. And it's real easy to look at that and think, oh, God, you're so mean. God, you're so mean. Like, how could you do that? Like, is it possible that maybe God, instead of being so mean, just went ahead and removed them from their misery? And we justify it with animals all the time, right? you got a horse that you love dearly, breaks its leg, it's going to live in misery the rest of its life. What do you do? Put it down. It's not because you don't love the animal. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's that you know, with the little knowledge you have, that there's nothing good that's going to come from this scenario for this horse. So what do you do? You put it out of its misery. Fire decided that they would do their own thing. And God allowed them to do their own thing. So it seems really messy that we would get upset with a God who basically says, you want your own way? You can have it. I'm not trying to scare you here. To be honest with you, I think if you're alive right now, I don't think God was happy dead. But would he take a moment in scripture that he knew that thousands of years, for a thousand years, people were going to read it and discover it and try to be more like Jesus through it. Do you think he would use that for his glory? In other words, do you think he would allow someone to die to point you to him? Did it with a son who was perfect, right? And so all of a sudden, this isn't about God being wrathful or mean. This is about us saying, God, we think we're smarter than you. So the option is only one of two things. And I hate to simplify it to that little on every deal, but there's really only two options for you. Be in Jesus' hands or be in your own. Let me just go and beat you to the punch. Eventually, your own hands ends up there. If it happens in a moment, it happens in a moment. If it happens in a hundred years, it happens in a hundred years. It says narrows the gate. Leads to abundant life. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. The Bible says it this way in John 10 10. Jesus is very clear and he says this. And this is what we've decided which one we want to believe here. He says, The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus is telling people, Hey, listen, I need you to understand this. The enemy, Satan, the ruler of this world, the king of lies, the author of lies, that guy, Satan, he has come to steal kill and destroy your life. And then Jesus clears it up. But I, I, I have come to give you life in abundance. If you believe that scripture, then all of a sudden it makes perfect sense that we believe what happens in Acts 5. They didn't want abundance. They wanted their own way and it led to their destruction. So what does this mean for us, right? Well, how, well I guess there's a better question that I want us to ask because I, mean, I, I really don't want you to leave here. I mean, I, Actually, let me read this because I, I, I do want this for you. So I, I don't want to manipulate you, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I do want this for you. This is what he said. 
Verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I don't necessarily think a little bit of fear in this deal is a bad thing. The problem is the churches use fear to control and manipulate you. If you die right now, do you know where you're going? If, you know, you need to sign this document. We need to baptize you. We need to get you on our number board. We need to send it down to the convention. We need to make all that stuff happen. Let's go. If you die, let's, let's make this happen now, right? Like, this isn't, this isn't that objective. But I think there is an awareness that we need. That there is Jesus' hope. He's the plan. And everything else doesn't work. I do think we need that awareness, right? That's the fear we should walk in as, wow, why would I do that to my family? Or why would I not do the right thing? Just because this feels better when I know at the end of the deal, what feels good typically isn't good for me. You know, like if, if uh, I'm very intrigued by recovery stuff. I announced to y'all last week that uh, starting in May, we'll be hosting a, kind of like a, a recovery worship service on Saturday nights. I'd love for you to be a part of it. That's the second Saturday in May. But one of the cool things I love about recovery in the deal is, and I've been reading through um, Conquering Chemical Dependency. It's like a book on 12 steps for, for Christians. But one of, the, one of the tools they give you is to play the tape all the way through. In other words, don't just do this thing in this moment because it feels good. Consider the ramifications for the things that you're doing, right? And so there's this idea that if I, if I play the whole tape through, all of a sudden, even though this feels good in this moment, I know that the consequences are for my family, for my spouse, for my kids, for my legacy, for all those things, right? I mean, that's just kind of the part. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, 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 let me just show you what the tape played all the way through looks like. That's it. The enemy comes to still kill and destroy. So as elementary as it is, there's two options. Jesus and anything else. Jesus leads the abundant life. Anything else? Destruction. This isn't that I want to be dogmatic. Trust me. I wish there were more ways. I'd like for you all to spend eternity with me and we'll play backgammon and have a great time and love Jesus. Like, I would love for that to happen, right? This isn't about being dogmatic. It's about if there really was a king who stepped out of his glory and died for us, then you better believe I'm going to make a big deal about him because he's the only option for you. So, yeah, of course I want you to jump in on that. That's why I just want to be real clear here. She's saying, look, there's either me or there's destruction. A couple of frequently asked questions that I just want to cover because I'm sure this, this may rough you up a little bit. I'm glad. I like the tension a little bit. Are Ananias and Sapphira in hell? Don't you wonder that? I mean, like, what if God could have saved them from that and they could have gotten their life back together? Like, are they, are they in hell? No, because we, we believe, like the Bible tells us, that um, uh, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord is saved, anyone who doesn't, isn't. Like, which means they are separated from Jesus for all eternity. Perfect God can't be with imperfect people. That's part of justice. That's part of the deal. Is a holy, perfect God. And he gave a, he made a path through Jesus to say, he'll pay the price for your sins so you can be in this. So Ananias and Sapphira are in hell. I don't know. I really don't. Do I believe one bad decision in the middle of this moment send them there? Absolutely not. Because guess what? If that's the case, we're all in a lot of trouble. Do I believe that moment sent them there? Absolutely not. Really, I just don't know where they landed with Jesus before then. So the answer to the question, I don't know, because I don't know where Ananias and Sapphira are. Maybe they just spent their whole life pretending. Hey, we need to go be a part of that hippie group, and the way we fit in is by lying, so they think we're all Christian-like, right? I'll tell you this. I'll tell you, Ananias and Sapphira, depending on their faith, are no different than a lot of pastors, a lot of people who go to church every week. In terms of playing this really good part and pretending, but inside are, are dead and nasty and lying. So are they there? I don't know. Is it because of their decision that God would have sent them there? Absolutely not. Is it because they didn't trust him? That, they never trusted Jesus? Yeah, they're apart from him. First question, here, here's another one that I think will be asked. Well, the Bible says that Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. So how does that work? Because he just smashed them, right, like a fly on the wall, like whammo. Like that's not the God of love. We quote it, Hebrews 13.5. Let me read to you the front side of Hebrews 13.5. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For it is written, he will never leave you, or I will never leave you, or forsake you. In fact, even in that message, what he's saying is, no, 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 here, listen, pay attention. Pay close attention to this. 
You need to stay the path with Jesus. You need to let him be your plan. Because you're going to get caught up in money and somehow in your head, you're going to think that you're in control of your own life, that you get to chart out your own path. Then all of a sudden, in the middle of that deal, you'll go your own way. And Jesus said, no, 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 look, I'm enough. Why wouldn't you just trust me with your plan? I will never leave you or forsake you. In other words, you want to go to destruction, you want to do that, then just get out of my hands. Just get out of my hands. You can do that. But why would you? Why would you go trust money? Or why would you go trust a new job or a new spouse? When uh, The minute you do that, it leads to destruction. So Jesus said, yeah, I'll never leave you or forsake you. But can you walk out on Jesus? So yeah, I don't think Jesus will leave you. But I'm not concerned about Jesus leaving you. He's perfect. I'm concerned about us turning our backs on him. He's not going to turn his back on us. Because he's perfect, he's loving, he's gracious. But most days we're not. So how do we know if we're living in this, right? There's a very simple rubric, very simple solution. Kind of test to say. It has to do with two words, confession and concealment. Okay. I'm going to make a statement to you, and I'll say it a couple of times. I think it's important enough for you to understand. And I think it'll help us walk in this. I mean, basically what you have with Ananias and Sapphira, you have people that concealed some information instead of confessed with them the truth, right? And here's what I believe, okay? Here's what I believe. We fear the consequences of confession because we don't fully understand the consequences of concealment. We fear the consequences of confession. We fear being honest with people. But the reason we fear it is because we don't fully understand the consequences of keeping it in. We fear the consequences of confession because we don't fully understand the consequences of concealment. In other words, if you realized how much ruin it was happening to your soul in terms of the amount of time you spent lying and covering up. And wouldn't some of you just love the opportunity not to have to remember what, what last lie you said so you can make the next one correctly? Like, wouldn't there just be some freedom in that? We fear just being honest with who we are because we don't understand how dangerous it is to not be honest. Ananias and Sapphira feared saying, you know what, we just got a little bit on of it to ourselves because we didn't fully trust Jesus here. Instead they said, no, 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 we're good. Yeah, this is it. Because they didn't fully understand the consequences of keeping it in. Because if we're, confession is just this. Confession is this. Or uh, sin, or lying, or whatever it is, or withholding is just this. It's us saying this. We don't fully trust God. In one of two ways. Either we don't fully trust God with our, our future, right? Like, God, I'm going to lie on my resume because I don't really think you'll cover me and all the costs that I need for financial security. So I'm going to lie on my resume so that I can ensure that I can get the job, Right? Or God, I'm going to lie about this. I'm going to lie to my spouse because I'm not really sure how this is going to turn out if I do the right thing. So I'm just going to lie because somehow we think that's a better option. That's basically saying, hey, God, we don't trust you with our future. Or, so we don't trust him with our future, so we lie, we don't trust him with our value. I mean, really, did you, did you really make that high on the SATs? Do you really make that much money? Did you really do that in high school? Did they really write that newspaper article about you? Did your dad really do that? Did he really say that? That really happened? Is your grandfather really that person? You see, all of us spend so much time making up stuff because somehow we think if we can convince you that we're worth more by what we lied about, that we actually are worth more. In other words, God, I'm gonna, I don't fully trust you in my value, so I'm gonna make up stuff to make me feel more valuable. But the messy part of it is, is even if other people look at you and think those things when you lay your head down at night, it actually is doing more damage to your soul. So want to know if you're trusting God fully? You're being honest about who you are. You know, there's nothing I long for more in a church and a family, which are the same to me. You're my family. You're as much my family, if not more, than my blood family is. There's nothing I long for more than a bunch of people who can be honest about where they are because they know they're going to be cared for and embraced no matter what. So I don't know what this looks like for you, but I'll know this. There wasn't an invitation in the Bible that says you need to um, pray this prayer. You need to ask Jesus into your heart. The invitation that came out of the Bible was Jesus saying, follow me. Follow me. And I'll make you fishers men. Follow me. That was what he invited you on. In other words, look, I'm not going to ask you to go anywhere that I haven't already gone. The question isn't what would Jesus do? The question is what did Jesus do? And Jesus is saying, look, you want to see the plan? I'll show you the plan. 
follow me. Because the enemy comes to still kill and destroy. And I've come to give you life to the fullest. So what do I think Jesus wants for you? I think he wants more than your property or the money you sold from your last thing. I think he wants your life. So that's what you have to figure out. Jesus says, you're playing enough that I'll give you all of me and just do what you say or will I not? I'm not trying to be the bearer of bad news because there's a lot of good news in this deal. But there are two plans in life, destruction and Jesus. And it just would make sense that we would choose to follow the only one who actually knows what he's doing. So what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? What happened to you today? Probably not. Has it already been happening to you? Probably so. I'm going to pray over you and we're going to sing. Um, and for a second, they're just going to sing over you. A song that says, I give my life to you. And I just want you to sit still for a second. And then in a few minutes, they're going to invite you in to sing that song and then sing an old hymn with us called, I have, that says, I've decided to follow Jesus. And I'd love for you just to consider the, the cost. Consider the cost of doing things your own way versus doing them Jesus' way. And if that's a decision you decided to make, then make it by standing up. And they'll invite you into that deal and singing this with us, saying, Jesus, we give our life to you. You're all I want. You're all I need. And following up by saying, look, I've decided to follow Jesus. They're turning back. Though none go with me, I'm still going to follow. Let me pray for you. Jesus, um, God, I just believe your word's real. I believe that, um, that it points to you, Jesus. Like even the story of Ananias and Sapphira is just pointing not to a mean, angry God, but a God who actually knows our hope and our future. A God who literally is making us more like himself and showing us a plan that's more worthwhile. God, I couldn't even imagine what it'd be like to live a life that I wasn't so concerned about my value or so concerned about my future. God, I could not imagine walking in a place where all I was concerned with is God is sitting still before you and knowing that you're in charge. God, you say in your word that we should cast our cares upon you. You didn't make that as a suggestion. That was a commandment. And so God, for the folks in this room right now who are struggling, God, when they cast their cares upon you. God, even in this moment, is there, God, I just feel like folks are trying to investigate, okay, where is it that I'm following my own plan and not God's? Where is it I'm following my own plan, Jesus, and not following yours? And so, Jesus, would you just reveal that to us? God, my guess is the places that we're most messy, it's our finances or our marriage or our family or our job. God, my guess is those are the places we're not following. So God, would you reveal the messy parts of our life and instead of hiding them, would you let us deal with them and be honest with you about them, Jesus? Will we trust you fully? Because Jesus, you say, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but you have come to give us life and life to the fullest. So God, it just makes sense that we would be fully alive by trusting you. So speak to us, Jesus. Because I know you can. I know you want to. Actually, I know you will. So I pray these things. I ask these things in your name. Amen.